You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back to the second episode with Maeve O'Neill. In today's episode of the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, Maeve discusses what it was like to share her family experience growing up with her own children. Listen as we discuss the progress through three generations with resources, education, and empowering children with information. The impact of this family disease is generational, and so is the impact of recovery. Let's get back to Maeve. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. So I need to ask this because I think for family members, there's the struggle when they're in the learning curve of this disease of separating the person from the disease. Are they separate? Are they different? I believe they are. I think that it takes over somebody and changes who they are. Would your father have physically hurt you if he were sober? Mm -hmm. If you were not an alcoholic? Mm -hmm. Can you answer that? I don't think so. I think when he was sober, he was incredibly quiet and I think very, very soft hearted. I think over the years, these incidents would happen and then they would feel badly. I do believe they felt badly. I remember a few apologies here and there, but mostly we just didn't talk about it. It was an elephant in the living room, literally like we're not, not going to mention what happened last night, which is even more crazy making the actual incident that occurs, right? It is. I don't recall him ever being violent when he was sober, but you could see it building up. I think that's part of the fear too, as you know stressful things are happening and nothing's being said or nothing's being handled so you know it's going to come out like that pressure cooker yeah exactly and i that's also a positive i've come to not let the pressure build up if i need to say something i'm going to say it and we're going to resolve it and we're going to move forward right because i'm used to it building up that way mm-hmm. and i think even my mother as guarded as she was and as unkind as she could be I remember my son was born and she'd been gone for a while. Then she came back into the country and she met my son, who's now almost 21. Mm. He was probably a few months old and she bent over his crib and she told him that she said, I love you to him. And I was like, "Um, wow, I've never heard those words in her voice. And it was like, wow, what a gift that she could shift that and give that to him. And maybe she meant to give it to me too at the time because it was intentionally, you know, in front of me. So, you know, I think. In their heart of hearts, they are who they are, and they were just not able to manage the stuff that life had thrown at them is how I see it. And addiction was the only way they knew to kind of get to the day. And once hijacked by that disease, it's hard to find a way to repeat the pattern over and over again. Absolutely. What do your children know of your story? Are you different than your parents and that you're open about your journey? They know everything everything. And I think right or wrong, I've always told them everything. And early on, it was just, you know, here's who I am. Here's, you know, kind of how we come to this. There'd be times you just find a reason to tell the story. And then they 
didn't see our parents a lot. They would see other kids with their grandparents or people. And then for a while, my dad lived with us when they were little. And they actually witnessed the time that he drank too much alcohol. And they were like, oh, oh, that's what you grew up with. And luckily, it wasn't violent. It was just under the influence in a way they don't normally see adults, you know, right. act. And they're like, oh, now I get it. And then we've had a couple of situations over the years where we've had to educate that and talk about that. And then I put them in Betty Ford's five-star kid program. Fabulous. Having grown up with Jerry Moe in my life as a huge mentor, and, you know, I adore him. The best. The best. Yeah, if I credit, you know, my life to anybody, Jerry's up there along with Sis Wanger and those guys. So Jerry met them at a conference. Gosh, they were probably like 10 and 7 years old. Like, that guy's cool, you know. And and so then when they were, I think Aiden was turning 13 and Lainey was 10, I put them in Betty Ford's, the program up here in Dallas. So they went through that program and they both graduated. Gosh, that was such an, I can tell a quick story with that. Yeah, I'd love it. I'll try not to cry because this is a tough one not to cry to. But so they were in the program. My son was kind of a big kid. He's a football player. So he's the oldest in the group of many, many younger kids. And Lainey was seven and she's a little bit more of an outgoing personality, a little bit tougher. So I didn't know how they were going to do. I thought she's probably not going to talk and he's probably going to be like caretaking everyone. Like it's just going to be interesting. So I remember we dropped him off the first day and they're both like, oh, come on. It's like first day of summer break. Like, mom, do we have to do this? This is the dumbest thing ever. I'm like, I have to give you every skill I know you can have. You got to have these skills. Sure. So they go and then we get in the car when I picked him up and Delaney, who's seven, she says, we learned about the backpack today. I said, oh, the backpack where you put rocks in and it wait." And she's like, oh, how do you know about the backpack? And I was like, well, okay, I kind of have some degrees and licenses behind my name, but that's okay. They, they, they taught you about the backpack. That's good. Yeah. At that point, she loved it. She thought it was amazing. And Aiden was like, yeah, it was kind of nice. I had a good time. So went back the next day and the final day we got to go back and be with all the families, you know. And these kids in the group, their parents had passed away. Their parents were locked up. They were in treatment. Like, and our kids are kind of like, uh, our mom and dad's right here and they're pretty cool. And we were still married at the time. You know, they were, I think they kind of felt like, wow, our lives are not that bad, you know? So then afterwards, they pull us, of course, to our little family session. And I remember Kyle um, says to me, you know, Maeve, Delaney shocked us today in our group. And I thought, uh-oh, what did she can be a little bit, uh, <laughs> I wonder what she would have said to them, you know? And she sort of teared up and she said, as we were going around this circle, all the kids were sharing what they had learned and what they liked. And she said, Lainey says to the group in her 10-year-old little voice, she said, you know, my family isn't like your families in some ways. And I feel bad for the, the situations that you guys have to go through. And I'm grateful that my family, you know, doesn't have some of these problems that your family has. Mm-hmm. Then she goes, but now I wonder what it was like for my mom growing up. Oh. And I was like, oh, God, you could not pay for that kind of empathy, right? And she got it at that point. And the way she's looked at me since that day has shifted mm-hmm. because she sees, I think, in me, those little kids, like, oh, that's what my mom had to deal with. So I can see her go to, you know, even now she's a teenager, she's almost 18. You know, she sees that little girl sometimes and it shifts who she is, which is pretty cool. Wow. What a gift you are to your children that... You shared your stories and you've been open, but you also afforded them resources. And, and you know, one of the greatest things I think we gift our children is that mental health, rehabilitation, any kind of care on that scope is just like one of the doctor for physicals and going to the dentist right. for teeth. And you gave them that beginning at a nice young age to know that yes. it's okay. 
Yep. 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 In fact, they probably was Aiden. I remember early on, maybe the early days of COVID or before COVID, he said, why doesn't every high school kid have a counseling session every week? <laughs> Don't wait for a problem or an issue. Like we should all just have it all the time as preventative. But that makes sense. I'm like, wise. I wish you could run the world. Wise. Very wise. Yes. Why do we wait till the crisis or the bomb? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. I hope you've heard about my newest adventure. I am the author in an anthology entitled Voices of the 21st Century, Women Empowered Through Passion and Purpose. This is a career highlight, and it was not an easy step to take, but I'm glad I did. If you have a desire to get a copy of this incredible book filled with 45 women's stories of empowerment through passion and purpose, please go to my website, EmbraceFamilyRecovery.com, where you can order a copy of my book. It can be personalized if you wish, or you can just buy one. But if you want one with my name on it, you have to get it through my website. Amazon is selling our wonderful book, but it is selling it specifically under Gail Watson as the author versus the one that includes my name in the title. You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. So the reason I reached out to you was you put a post on LinkedIn under the umbrella of all sober, but you wrote in there so eloquently and beautifully about being the child of and being raised in the family. And I was really moved by that because we don't see that lens very often. And it's obviously the lens I'm passionate about putting out there. So I really appreciate your candor and your vulnerability and your willingness to share that story and also be here to share it with the audience. When you look back over your journey in the field, your family, you knew you'd get into helping. What parts of your recovery journey are you willing to share? Like what tools or resources, what has your evolution looked like in your own mm -hmm. personal journey of recovery? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I'm really lucky in that I started working in the field so young. I was 18, my first job in, in a treatment center. So I pretty early on wasn't doing what maybe other 18-year-olds were doing. So I've never developed what I consider to be an addiction. I'm not a non-drinker, but I'm not a heavy drinker. And I haven't immersed myself in a recovery community. But I think because of the work that I do, I'm around people like me. I'm not around a lot of people that party or or do a lot of that stuff. You know, we've got other stuff going on. We're obviously very good, hardworking, committed parents. So that's kind of been more what the, the circle that I've been around. Mm -hmm. I've certainly had people in my life personally, in the family that we've helped navigate to treatment. And I actually feel really lucky to be able to do that, to mm -hmm. someone say, well, here's what's going on. What do you think? And help them to find that. I think that's critical because like you said, I think it should just be normal. You'd ask me a dentist that I know or a doctor or a primary care, you know, physician and ask me about therapists and treatment centers and meetings and all that good stuff. So to me, it just sort of has been the world that I live in on a regular basis. And probably early on, I had to navigate that because I'm not in recovery myself. I mean, I think recovery is where we all kind of in recovery in some ways. But am I worthy to work with those people then since I don't have that story? I remember early on in treatment, they would say, well, how much time do you have? Or at first I would, oh, do I have to, should I lie? Should I make up that I'm in recovery? And I finally got really comfortable saying, it's my family. And people react like, oh, okay. So 
most people react in a very positive way that I myself am not in recovery and I can own that, but I think I have something to offer because of my family recovery and the things that I've learned it can help with. So I've never had a problem with it once I got comfortable that it was a good contribution to bring. Boy, you're singing my song. I remember landing at Hazelden coming out of the relationship and I had that side of recovery. Like Mm -hmm. I knew I was a mess. I knew I needed help, but I didn't know what help I needed. Thankfully, was given the grace to be around amazing people who directed me to Al-Anon, directed me to therapy, directed me in ways to find recovery tools. But I remember sitting in the units, dreading the moment someone was going to say, so what's your story? When did you Mm -hmm. use? How did you get sober? And had fellow students say to me, you have no business working in this field because you are not. So you're not alone in that. And Mm -hmm. one of the wise people, Elsa Sorensen, she was an Mm -hmm. amazing woman at Hazelton Betty Ford, and she ran one of the units I worked on. And at the time, I was in complete denial of my own food addiction, which came to light later. But Mm -hmm. she said to me, do you get through life by mood altering? Are you using Mm -hmm. to live your life? And I said, no, I don't drink. I don't use drugs. She says, then you're role modeling every day what our clients are trying to learn. You have a space here. Mm. That's right. Oh, that's good. And I was like, okay, okay, I can do this. But it turned out, you know, my own fraudulence in my own addiction <laughs> was a very painful part of my journey in the field until I got clear and mm. got help. Did you ever get directed to Al-Anon, Alateen, any of those resources when you were younger navigating this? No, I mean, that's funny. I look back and I and I share a lot of my story in my ethics and compliance training that I find it almost shocking that as a kid, given how we were, that no one ever intervened. I'm kind of surprised that a school counselor or a teacher or someone never said or did anything. And I don't know if that's because we all just presented really well or I don't know. But no, I never had any kind of intervention or support, although our family friends now would say, you know, they kind of laugh like, oh, your family, you know. We would show up and we would take you guys for the weekends. They were doing it without us knowing that's what they were doing. They were just loving on us and, and giving us that time and attention and kind of supporting our parents in ways that they probably felt that they could. And then our immediate family, we had been estranged from them and we came back together later in life. And they too just sort of said, we wish we could have done more and, and you know, been around more, but we weren't being received well. So we connected. Now we have cousins on my uh, dad's side that we reconnected with and now we're very, very close with. So that's a good thing. And maybe it's a different time now. I mean, all teachers are trained to recognize, you know, abuse or to ask those questions and all that. And I was in school early on getting my associates in addiction counseling. So went to those meetings for those purposes. And certainly at the treatment centers I worked in, I would gravitate towards those meetings. So I feel like I live and breathe the 12 steps. I understand and I get it never formally went through it. Because then, of course, you know, when you work in the field, can I go to the meetings? What if I see a client there? So then I it was always like, I need the information, but I don't know that I can be in the community if I'm serving the community. So it's always really hard for me. So I became a very active learner and reader. And as I got on through my degree processes, I learned a lot and without directly going through and working a program. And I don't know that that's that uncommon. You know, I think that some of us heal ourselves through a diverse platform of ways. It's 
reading, it's listening to stories, it's identifying with, it's picking up nuggets, it's sitting in therapy for 10 years. It varies. It's going to meetings. It's what path we find. Exactly. Were you angry ever at the adults not noticing or not intervening? Did you ever go, golly, would somebody do something? Or were you just truly surviving? So that didn't Mm -hmm. cross your mind. Yeah, I don't remember as a kid being angry. I just remember more so those adults in our lives. Formative part of our years were in New Orleans and we lived in the French Quarter and it was a pretty chaotic time. We went to a wonderful school though called the Free School, which was sort of you know the beginnings of the Montessori, but even more free. It was very much run by a group of hippies. And those adults in that circle, I just knew they loved us. I knew they loved us and I knew that they accepted us. And I remember kind of thinking they knew what was going on. They just weren't going to say, maybe they were intervening in the background, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember just feeling like, okay, they get it. There could be a safe person if I needed it, or we'll just go to their house. There was a lady next door to us in one of the places we lived that I remember going to her house. Her name was Linda. We'd go to Linda's house and just sit on Linda's porch. So I just remember just finding those safe places that didn't necessarily say, oh, your family has this problem, but they were just available. And I think that's what we can do in our schools, in our communities, even in our treatment centers. You don't always have to be like in the clinical framework, right? We can just be there and be with people. And that's pretty powerful. You're right. I mean, it's very much a part of who you are and how you came through this life. I mean, you gravitated to those people. You sought them. They were given to you. Universe brought them to your life, however the language is. But it sounds like you're skill or approach to life has been to find the example that you wanted or find Mm -hmm. people that you needed family of choice versus family of birth, whatever language works for people. Yes. 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 And that's a huge skill that our children, I would think are even finding harder through COVID when we were Mm -hmm. so shut down and isolated that we couldn't be with those other people who were positive influences in our lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely very hard time for many, many people. Yes, I can imagine that. Luckily, we have the technologies. Maybe they have phones or laptops or iPads that they could seek it out online. I would hope that would be the case. Right. I would too. My observation of young people through COVID, granted, I had a small window because it was my exchange student, my youngest and my oldest were in the home. They had each other, which was good and bad, drove each Mm. other crazy. Right. The technology at first was incredibly intimidating, didn't want to do Mm. it, were afraid to do it, even though they're always on their phones, it was different. Mm -hmm. And having to encourage them to pick up the phone or Zoom or connect because the TikToks and the just mind numbingness of watching and escaping was more appealing Mm -hmm. than having to force yourself to do this. Whereas in school, you're visiting all day long. Right. It's a challenge. And I'm sure you missed your own version of that adjustment. Yeah, I think we were lucky. We're in a school community here that the teachers seem to get that, you know, put your camera on for maybe a minute, turn it off if you don't feel comfortable, speak up if you want to. I feel like we were very lucky in honoring each person's sort of challenges with it. And luckily we kind of got through it. And my son went off to college. His first year of college was still at the end of Mm. of the COVID stuff. So it's certainly an adjustment, but, you know, feeling like you have choice here, but you don't have choice in that. That can be really hard. So in a weird way, I remember feeling like, I feel like my kids grew up in this bubble. Like we were so protective and so careful to give them a different life. I was like, well, finally something in their life that's going to be difficult. (laughs) You know, Finally some challenges. 
So I'm proud of how they got through it. And then, of course, the divorce happened the exact same time. Oh, a lot happened. We separated just months before COVID happened. So it was a lot at one time. So there's been a lot of talking about that. And I wish it wasn't so hard. But, you know, that is life, too. Life can throw these things at us that we have to navigate. In the next and final episode with Maeve O'Neill, we discuss her expansive career in the field and the exciting projects she's currently working on to help all of those suffering from the disease of addiction, those who love them, and those working in the field. There is an exciting resource in this episode that I'm thrilled to be sharing with our listeners. I want to thank my guest for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.